Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline's not joining us today. Our guest today, Eileen Grace Brill, is a painter, writer, and sign language interpreter who grew up outside of Philadelphia and graduated from Carnegie Mellon with a BS in economics. She has written professionally in the restaurant for the restaurant, hotel, and commercial real estate industries. And the book we're talking about today, A Letter in the Wall, is her first novel. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Eileen. Thank you, Monica. It's nice to be here. So where outside Philadelphia exactly? Um, I'm just north of the city in the northern suburbs. Um, the town is called Elkins Park. I grew up in Strasburg, which is not that far away. Sure, <laughs> probably, I know where that is. Yeah, probably what, maybe 40 minutes away from where you grew up, something like that? I think that. so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and a sign language interpreter, how did you become that? <laughs> that was sort of a second career. Um, yeah, I had, I used to be, you know, in the corporate world after I graduated college. And then when my second son was born, I just, I, uh, the company I was working for went out of business and I decided to stay home for a few years and, um, always thought I would get back into what I was doing before. Um, but I, also was gravitating towards, um, I, I love language, all kinds of languages, spoken or otherwise, and I had a friend who worked for uh, Pennsylvania School for the Deaf, and I just asked her so many questions about deaf culture and sign language and interpreting, and then I enrolled in an interpreting program um, and, uh, in, in uh, 2011. And so now I, I'm a freelance sign language interpreter. What are, what are some of the, like the circumstances where you do that? Um, I do a lot of uh, medical appointments, um, ho hospitals, doctor's offices. I've done uh, post-secondary education, college classes. Um, occasionally I'll do something in the business environment, like if there's a, a, a company's training, a new employee, things like that. That must be really interesting. <laughs> so, it is. I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah. One of my older, my older brother um, learned sign language as a, um, to be able to, for his church. And they do it. They have a mission to the deaf community, basically, in his church. And he really, he really gets into it. Yeah. yeah, a lot of churches uh, have sign language interpreters. And um, I know quite a few interpreters that, that uh, volunteer in churches and it's yes yeah, first of all it's a great way to hone your skill oh yeah, yeah. i bet but it's hard you know <laughs> interpreting li uh, liturgy and service and uh you know sermons <laughs> it's really difficult <laughs> i would think all of it would be very difficult when you're having to sort of do it on the spot you're listening and particularly if they're not pausing for you absolutely yeah, it's and it's input. You've got the input that's staying in your short-term memory while you're putting out, you know, information on your hands, and then, you know, goes the other way too. If someone is signing and you're taking that in and then putting it out in your voice, so it's it is it's it's challenging. It's like, and I know a couple different languages, um, but speaking spoken languages, it's so much harder because <laughs> you know it's a visual thing. So, um, but yeah. it's it's wonderful. I really I really love it. So A Letter in the Wall is your first novel. How, or your first published novel, is it the first novel you actually wrote? <laughs> no, well, let's see. Uh, I probably started about five other novels throughout my life. The first one was, I think, when I was about 17 or 18. And um, each time I had sort of an inspiration and started writing and then got to the point where either I didn't, I, I felt, the more I wrote, the more disconnected I felt from the story, or I just realized I didn't have enough life experience to proceed. And then this came along, and this was just, I did not have those issues at all. This just felt so natural and so wonderful. What, what it, was it about this one that made that happen, do you think? Uh, well, because it was uh, inspired by a letter that I found in my house, and it was, um, you know, based on a person that actually had lived in my house, I felt a connection that way. And then I just, um, you know, I, I I didn't know her. I mean, she was she died a long time ago, and uh, I, I I had to kind of imagine who I wanted her to be. And because of that, I kind of created this personality profile, psychological profile of who 
my protagonist was. And that sort of became the vehicle driving the plot and, and all the other characters. And I felt almost as if, you know, it's sort of like um, actors talk about um, understanding the motivation of the parts they play. I kind of felt like I knew her so well and knew her motivations and her fears and what drove her. And so the process of writing her just, I mean, it just felt natural. It's not to say I didn't get stuck, but I think because I had that connection because of this letter I found in my house, that it just felt very personal. So how did you find this letter and, and what did it say? <laughs> um, so uh, I moved into this house um, in 2007 with my husband and my two sons, and we were um, we had an electrician on the third floor putting in a new outlet, and he, so he cut a hole in the wall and reached in to grab wires, and he pulled out this envelope, and he was about to throw it away. I, I was standing nearby, and I and I took it from him, and it was addressed to um, someone in New Jersey. So and uh, I opened up the um, envelope and. It was written on personalized stationery, which um, the address was my address. So I realized this was a letter that had not been, it was supposed to be mailed from someone in my house and it never had been mailed. Um, and it had this person's name on it. So I, you know, did a little research and um, initially found out some things about her and her family. Uh, they were the first owners of this house that was built in 1920 and they were Quakers, um, pretty, you know, um, well-to-do, prominent people in their community. Um, and I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't get a lot of information initially about um, the, the woman that wrote the letter. Um, but what I did find out was that she was murdered in 1971 um, in Oklahoma. So then I just needed to know how this person <laughs> ended up there, what, where her life took her that that ended in murder so um it initially started out as a, a biography i was doing a lot of research off and on for many years how did you find out that she was murdered so uh you know you can there's a lot of public records on the internet um you can find a lot of records on um, websites like ancestry and there I, I learned what uh, you know her her maiden name was and her uh, she was married a few times so I got her her married names um, and when I started googling those names really the only thing that came up was was her, that her murder took place uh, in Oklahoma and the circumstances around that um, and you know there were a lot of newspaper articles about that and about the subsequent murder trial, it was just odd to me. I mean, not odd, but, you know, trying to get information about her life leading up to that was kind of, um, I mean, I, I got bits and pieces, sort of the skeleton of her life, but that, that was the most relevant and uh, populated piece of information on the internet about her. Uh, Did you try and reach out to other to family members to other you know trace other mem members for family and see if any were still living yeah so um she had four children um the youngest i believe she's still well she was still alive a few years ago she was about 80 a, a couple years ago um actually lived in new jersey i did not contact her um for a variety of reasons um also the um the person that I wrote, that I wrote the book about, or not, that was inspired the book. Um, she lived in this house with her father and her aunt and uncle and her two cousins. Um, and I kind of traced her, one of her cousins' families a bit. Um, but again, you know, I thought it, when I was going to write a biography, I was planning on reaching out to them. But um, the circumstances around her murder, it was a, it was an um, the the suspect was tried and it was um a hung jury the, i guess he was um there was, there was i don't know if, it, if it, a hung jury is the same as an acquittal but he was he was not found guilty and it was basically an unsolved murder so that was a really sensitive issue um and i just didn't want to open up a can of worms worms by reaching out to family who either may not have known her or in the case of her daughter, this was a, you know, a painful event that was never solved. And um, at that point, 
I did, I did learn things about her family. Her father worked for um, a Philadelphia newspaper that's, that's no longer in circulation. And um, her cousins, um, you know, went on to continue to um, observe their Quaker faith. Um, she, I believe, strayed from, from her Quakerism. So, you know, I did learn things about her family. And interestingly, I found a lot about her family members, but there was just not a lot of information about her. I, I found out some of the schools she went to, but it's just kind of like, it was just this, this shroud of mystery around her. So, you know, after a few years of off and on research and I did, you know, making phone calls and talking to um, cold case detectives and, you know, <laughs> calling people in Oklahoma, I decided that I really just wanted to write a fictionalized story inspired by by her, but not about her. So do you think that if one of her family members, I'm, I'm assuming you changed the names, yes. changed her name. So yes. if, a, if a family member picked up this book, do you think they would recognize, they'd say, oh my gosh, that's my great aunt, such and such, or, you know. I think it depends who picked up the book. So if it, for example, if her, if her youngest daughter is still living, if she caught wind of the book, um, yes, I do think, um, I do think it's possible. I do think she would recognize the story. Um, in, in every case, I changed the last name names. In some cases, I um, only changed the last name and not the first names. It just depends on if I felt like the name worked. Um, I added characters too that were fictional, and uh, so I think someone very close to her, like her daughter, might recognize the story. Um, I don't think that grandchildren or or great niece and nephews would would recognize the story. And, and interestingly, when I was doing research into her, I was on um, a website that was kind of chase train. Uh, tracing genealogy and there was someone who was probably her if if not granddaughter or great-granddaughter some you know somewhere down at, at that far removed from her and the person sort of tangentially mentioned her um and just said she died in 1971 didn't say she was murdered or anything else and so I actually reached out to that person on this website and said, um, hey, I grew up in her house and I found a letter in the wall of my house and, you know, it was written on personalized stationery and I think her nickname was was Jackie and, and you know, that was on that was printed on the on the letter and I think this is really interesting. And the response I got was that's interesting. I never heard that. Well, I guess that's why we're all here doing this research. And that was it. And she didn't seem interested in the slightest. And so, oh, I, you know, oh, yeah, that, that is was, strange. Was, yeah. That was a missed opportunity on her part. So yeah, yeah, huh? So, um, so are you still in that house? I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, did it make you like want to tear the walls apart and see what else you could find? <laughs> Yeah, so that's really interesting. So um, a few years after I started um, researching her, um, I was out front one day gardening or something, and somebody pulled up in my driveway, and a woman got out. She was in her 30s, and she told me that uh, she, um, her, family, her family were not the people that we bought the house from, but they were the people before that family. And um, she said, yeah, you know, my parents moved in the house, and they said they heard from the previous owners, oh, there was jewelry and all kinds of valuables hidden in these walls. So they had metal detectors and they could never find anything. I, you know, people always say things like that. But interestingly, we did just last week have to get, um, have a, a company come and take sledgehammers and open up one of the walls on the third floor because we were having some construction, you know, some uh, issues with the, you know, it's an old, old yeah. house and foundation issues. And I kind of took a video of that and thought, this is really funny. This looks like I'm digging for the next uh, thing in the wall. <laughs> but you didn't find anything. <laughs> Not just a lot of plaster and uh, nothing interesting. Is there an attic where there's like find things hidden in the corners of the attic? <laughs> yeah, there's an attic. I mean, I've, I've yet to find anything. But, you know, I don't know how this letter got in the wall. So, there, you know, who knows? I mean, it's just it's there was no 
there's no logical way that this letter got into this that portion of the wall on the other side was another bedroom with no visible opening it's just it's bizarre oh, to me. i don't okay. know how it got there it's okay. that 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 letter traveled within the wall because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't at a place where there was any way for it to have gotten in yeah i don't think there yeah. was an opening there wow that's, that's interesting yeah. that's interesting yeah. so as you were fleshing out this character who whose name was Joan Duman in the book. Did mm -hmm. I pronounce her last name yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you, like your, your, your press release calls her an anti-heroine, which, um, yeah, she wasn't very likable in a lot of ways. Why did you choose to make her like that? I didn't attempt to make her unlikable. I attempt to make her multi-layered and complex um, because I wanted her, I wanted her life and her personality and her decisions to be open to interpretation, which um, I'm actually finding it. I'm finding people are saying everything from <laughs> I didn't like her, she wasn't likable to I rooted for her, but she was frustrating too. Yeah, I yeah. actually liked her. I thought she evolved and she was like, I, I actually had someone recently tell me that they, she couldn't understand why people were saying she wasn't likable because she actually thought she was very human. And um, though she made some questionable decisions, uh, she sort of in the end, well, I don't want to, it's, it's not a spoiler, but you know, she, I, I do think she changed and evolved. And, but the interesting thing is that, you know, I don't think that most people, are all good or all bad. We're all kind of shades of gray and we have our, our secrets and we have our foibles and sometimes we make bad decisions and hopefully we learn from them. So I wanted to create a character that um, you kind of had to, she kind of pushed your buttons and you had to, you know, if not like her, possibly empathize or understand her. You know, if you know, where she's coming from and what some of her struggles were. And, you know, she was, she was from another time. She was born in 1915. Um, you know, she kind of didn't have, I mean, most women, you know, that were coming of age in the thirties, if they wanted something more than marriage and motherhood, they didn't have the role models to tell them they could do it. And their society wasn't telling them they could do it. And, you know, this is someone who was trying to, along the way, challenge the status quo and push back a bit and was not getting the support that she wanted. Or she was, you know, there were times she would get the emotional support that she needed, um, but it, I think it was frustrating for her because she didn't have the the language to be able to say, I want something else. Most most women didn't. So, yeah, you know, yeah. we, have, we have choices now in 2022 that, you know, many women didn't have and even though she was you know born into privilege and you know money was not an issue from you know growing up at, at least she didn't have the option of saying you know i'm not i'm not doing this i'm not getting married at a young age i want to find something else so yeah yeah um, and it's okay if you don't like her because i think that she's supposed to not be you know, <laughs> You gotta, she, you, she has to you win you over or you have to just maybe see her well, with eyes wide open. It's, I, I definitely could understand her frustration that she wanted to be, to do more, be more. I mean, I, I saw that. I think what, what frustrated me with Joan is that when she finally did get to a situation that, um, where she had some support from her husband, she didn't really appreciate it. That was <laughs> yeah. She was she was her own worst enemy sometimes, and yeah. it makes you wonder why did he stay with her? He obviously saw something that he loved in her. Um, you know, I don't think, like I said, I don't think she was. Um, I think she had her redeeming qualities. I think, and you know, she was generous and and had a good sense of humor and was charismatic and fun loving. But I think, you know, that, you know, my, it's interesting what you said about your grandmother, because my mother used to tell me stories about her own mother growing up. And I think my grandmother um, 
was very frustrated. She was a really intelligent woman. Um, and I think that her, she, her moods would change on a dime because, and she would, you know, one minute be fun loving and sweet and the next minute be yelling at her kids. And I think she, she was a frustrated writer and, and, you know, would have loved to have, um, had something of her own. So I, I, you know, on the one hand, you can look at Joan and say, oh, maybe she had, maybe this was some sort of, um, um, maybe it was, you know, depression, or um, maybe she had borderline personality disorder, or maybe she was just frustrated that her life, you know, she, she didn't self-actualize. Her life wasn't as she wanted it. She didn't have something of her own, and she took it out on people that loved her. And that's not a justification, but who knows, you know, why, yeah. why, yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Eileen Brill, author of A Letter in the Wall. Now, the character Joan's mother died when she was very, very young, so so that she could barely remember her. Was that something that was um, factually true about the writer of the letter you found in your wall? Yeah, yeah. Her Actually, her mother died in the in the pandemic and I wanted to um I wanted to keep that element in the story because I think it, it it did inform kind of uh the person she became and I thought that was a really strong uh, one of the big traumas in her early life yeah yeah it's it definitely had a huge influence on her her maybe difficulty she had bonding with her own children I don't think that motherhood is necessarily innate in human beings. It's sort of a learned behavior. And if you haven't learned it, it's kind of hard. You know, if you didn't experience that, I think it's hard to give that. Or if no one else in your family filled that role. I mean, in Joan's case, her father was sort of emotionally withholding. Yeah. So she didn't get what she needed from him. And then she was living, um, you know, her, her aunt was a good, kind person. But I think Joan looked sort of stood on the outside looking at her aunt's relationship with uh with her cousin and just felt like an outsider and i mean i do believe that joan loved her four children very very much her family was very important to her um but you're right i think that i think in in a lot of cases maybe you learn what you don't want to be if you grew up with a difficult parent or or even felt abandoned you would hope that when you have children of your own that you just embrace that and just give your children so much love, unconditional love, um, you know, because you, you didn't get it. I guess everyone's different. Yeah, it, that can happen. That can happen for sure. Um, Eileen, why don't you read a little bit from a letter in the wall for us? Okay. June 7th. 1971, Oklahoma. Joan sat at the desk in her dimly lit apartment as the last vestiges of summer daylight faded away. She reached into the drawer for her Mont Blanc pen, lifted the receiver from the telephone, and rested it on the desk. She did not want any disruptions, as she wrote, though no one typically called her at this late hour anyway. Lifting her lit cigarette from the ashtray, she straightened her posture and wound her neck in circles to ease the tightness before sitting back in her chair to collect her thoughts. For several minutes, she stared out the window at nothing in particular. Then, resolute, she took a last drag on her cigarette, jammed it into the ashtray, and began writing. To Sheriff Magan, Midwest City Police Department, Midwest City, Oklahoma, and anyone else who cares, she thought. I am writing you because I fear, as I tried to explain this morning in the parking lot at Diamond Ranch, that I may not live to see tomorrow. I have been threatened by my former business partner, Chuck Galloway a man with whom I believed I was entering into a legitimate business relationship over a year ago, only to find out he is a liar, a cheat, a predator, and an all-around human, evil human being. So I want the truth out there. If I die, I want the person responsible for my death to be identified, arrested, taken into custody, tried, and put in prison for the rest of his life. Without the information I'm providing you here, I doubt there would be any justice. Too many folks protect each other around here. I can't quite figure out why or how Galloway has the good reputation he's got, given what I'd heard about him in Little Rock and what he has put me through here in Oklahoma. 
But if I live, and as long as I live, I will fight him with every bone, muscle, and cell in my body to get what I rightly deserve. Chuck will say a lot of horrible things about me, but he's lying to cover his own hide. Do not believe this man or give him even one ounce of respect. He deserves none. She stopped writing and stared at her pen, a gift from her grandmother for Christmas in 1930. Such a finely crafted instrument, she thought. That was the world she came from, not here. She continued writing. Here's the whole story, start to finish, in case this is the end. Joan wished she hadn't left her typewriter back in Little Rock. It was so much more time consuming to organize her thoughts and put them all down coherently in longhand. And just before 10.30, she signed the letter and sat back to reflect on all she had written. She moved one hand around in an orbit from the wrist, flexing her fingers in and out, and then did the same with the other hand. She was feeling the achy stiffness of the beginnings of arthritis. She thought about her high school days some 30 plus years ago when she would write reports longhand. She never quite saw the point in that kind of effort. Joan removed another cigarette from the pack, noting it was the last. She was tense with ambivalence and reverted to the shameful insecurity of second guessing her judgment that had dogged her younger days. Does this make sense? Am I insane? As she lit the cigarette, she reconsidered why she had initially felt it would be a good idea to mail the letter, now wondering if her fear tonight was nothing more than paranoia, when she would wake up tomorrow morning and head straight over to the sheriff to have that discussion he promised her. No, 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 she said out loud. Mail this. She recognized there was no downside beyond redundancy in sending the letter to the sheriff. It would just reinforce what she'd tell him the next day, providing she survived the night. Anyway, it was good that she got it all down in writing. She took a long drag of the cigarette and sat back in her desk chair, scanning her living room. Near the front door were her barn boots, crusted with mud and strands of hay, the ones she wore when she needed to put in some face time at the Diamond Ranch sale barn, typically on days when Chuck was not there. She rarely cooked in her galley kitchen and never sat at the small round table situated next to it. Instead, she'd pop in for lunch at Frida's Country Diner or grab a sandwich at the local deli and eat it in her car while transporting horses. She might pick up barbecue on the road, buy enough for several people, and bring it to the barn to feed to whoever might be there on any given evening. When she ate dinner at home, it was takeout, and often while making phone calls to her kids, or watching Mannix, or the T Carol Burnett Show, or her newest favorite, the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Her apartment was not for entertaining. It was her office, her command central, away from Chuck and the staff at the sale barn, and somewhere she could rest her mind and her body most nights in preparation for each new day. The apartment itself was fine, nothing special, certainly not the kind of home she was used to living in, but at the time she'd signed the lease, she had meant it to be temporary, two years max, just to get the business up and running. What the hell was I thinking? Running a business with such a lowly, uncouth, and despicable person. I don't need him, never did. A breeze blew in from the window over her desk. It was warm, but she shuddered nonetheless as if this town were giving her a final warning. She knew what people said about her, that she was high-strung, overreactive. The sheriff himself had called her pugnacious, saying the word with a chuckle as if she were supposed to see the humor as well. She knew he was not referring to some sort of fighter's instinct, but rather that she was pushy and unrelenting in an unreasonable way. Still, she took that as a badge of honor, given her tendency to dive in and embrace conflict rather than avoid it. She knew how to get what she wanted only because she had learned to stop caring what people thought. In reality, Joan felt she was outgoing, friendly, and generous, even to folks she barely knew. She had charisma. So what if she knew how to use it? And that was Eileen Brill reading from A Letter in the Wall. So what did you know about sale barn business before you started writing this? <laughs> Um, nothing, <laughs> uh, nothing, nothing. I, I knew some about horses because I grew up, um, uh, riding horses a bit and going to horseback riding camp, but no, the sale of, uh, thoroughbred horses and livestock, I knew nothing about. Um, obviously that part of the story takes place in Oklahoma, an area of the country I know nothing about. Um, so that involved a, <clears throat> quite a bit of research. Did you go there? I didn't, I, um, you know, it was, uh, I actually talked to um, the owner of an auction business. Uh, he was in Texas and I talked to him a bit 
um, did a lot of reading about the industry, um, particularly the industry in back in the 60s and 70s, since that's when that part of the story takes place. And that industry has changed so much since then. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I, I did a lot of research into, uh, you know, running that kind of business, what was going on, um, terminology, you know, um, the type of people that attend these auctions, type of people that run them. So, and I love, I love research. So this was actually one, <laughs> one of the, this was so much fun. This, that part of the book. I actually have been to a number of horse auctions in those types of oh. sale barns myself back wow. many years ago, probably in the eighties and nineties is when I would have, would have been there. And did the choice to have that be her business, did that come out of real life? Was that what she actually was doing when she died? Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I think I, well, I mentioned that I had read a lot of newspaper articles following her murder. There was quite a few articles that said that uh, she had told people that she worried that her um, former business partner was going to kill her. And so I did a little research into their um, business. They did have, they did have a livestock and horse auction business. Um, so I, you know, I, I was kind of looking into that particular business and it was really only that, that part of the story is true that the, the business was only started two years before she was murdered. And um, j not long before they were murdered, they, severed the business relationship and that was another crucial element of reality that helped me sort of inform her character and understand like why why was she wasn't from the area you know why would someone enter into a business that for by all accounts she didn't not like she had a background in this how did she get involved with this person why did she get involved with him you know what was what was their relationship and how did they help each other and why in the end did she <laughs> hear that he wanted to kill her? So that I had to imagine what was going on in their relationship and in the business that made her, I mean, if she was being paranoid and completely um, irrational, that could have been the case. Um, I couldn't get the actual transcripts of the jury trial because, and I didn't know this, but you know, um, for jury trials or any kind of trial, really hearings, even you have the court reporters and the stenographers, court reporters, and they're the ones, at least in um, criminal cases that, that have ownership of the transcripts. So the person that was the court reporter in the murder trial with the jury died long time ago and those transcripts were his property and went with him. So what I did get were the more to the administrative transcripts, the pre-trial hearings, the motions before the judge, sort of that kind of thing, and anyone that was um, subpoenaed and spoken to and questioned. Um, and so her former business partner had been, you know, brought in, questioned as a possible suspect and let go. Hmm. And that was kind of interesting to me. Like, you know, he was, she feared so much that he wanted to kill her. And yet he, you know, I guess they didn't find enough evidence for, to to arrest him or to try him um and yeah so i mean i think i just strayed far from your question <laughs> oh no that's that's fine we're talking yeah talking about just the sale barn business and yeah. what was reality you know what was true right. and and um so at what point did you decide to that instead of a biography of this woman that you were writing a novel, I mean, how far into it were you? Had you already spent years researching at that point? Um, yeah, so I found, you know, I found a letter in 2007 and the, initially I just, I kind of did that initial research where I was kind of going, you know, on the internet and trying to find out like little superficial pieces of information. But then I was really busy. My kids were younger and I was, I was working part time and, put it away and then uh, came back to it a few years later. And um, I, I guess it was sort of an off and on project until about 2015 when I took a screenwriting class and I decided, I was like, oh, maybe I can write a screenplay. I think I don't know that I want to necessarily, I was getting frustrated because 
I couldn't get the level of detail I wanted to write a biography without possibly approaching family members. And I didn't want to go there. And so I was going to write a screenplay and I kind of put together the beginnings of it. And then I thought, I, you know what, I don't have a background in screenwriting. This is so different from, you know, the kind of writing I'm used to. And that's when probably in 2016, I decided I wanted to write a novel. Um, and that's when I really dug in and, and it took off from there. But like you mentioned, you had started a number of novels previously. So being a novelist was kind of always, you sounds like always a dream. Yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I love to write. I've always, I've always written, you know, I mean, I wrote professionally. Um, and but that was, you know, not any, that wasn't creative writing. Um, and I've always written short stories and, um, you know, attempted novels. And so I always felt like with the right inspiration, I was going to write a book. I, you know, I had this uh, creative side of me, this imaginative side of me, and I just needed the right inspiration to make it stick. And it, it worked this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. Now, is would you say that, um, I mean, kind of one of the themes of the book is this idea about feminism without, I mean, it's not like she was, I'm a feminist, I'm, you know, marching for women's rights, but she was constantly, Joan was constantly pushing up against the restrictions in, in society. Was this um, something from the beginning that you really wanted to, to bring out in the book? Not from the very beginning. I, I think in the beginning, I was almost making her more of a, um, for lack of a better word, more of a psychological mess. Like, and I think that's, that's before I really um, understood who I wanted her to be. And then I thought about that the time, not only the, the time period that she was growing up in and her teenage adolescent years, but then you know, she was a young mother, or she was, you know, a, a, a middle-aged woman in the 60s when um, her her daughters, her own daughters would have been sort of getting, um, their, getting their feet wet in the whole uh, women's movement, and that would have had an influence on her. And I, th I think I thought, you know, if, if she's giving, if she's pushing back and trying to um, find out who she is and what she wants. What you know? What? What is she? Well, she didn't have a name for that, or uh, in her earlier life, you know. And so I think, as as I started to develop her and think about who she became, I thought, you know, she really was a feminist, even though she would she wouldn't have identified with that herself right. that way. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what I see too. And sometimes mm -hmm. those women who um, they may even have resisted the feminist movement because they, I don't know, some, some may have embraced it because it's like, well, if, if, you know, my life would have been so much better if, if this had come along earlier and, and I had more opportunities. But I think other women from that time period were like, well, you're basically saying I wasted my life, and so I'm going to resist this, and um, we want to stick with tradition, um, or yeah. yeah. So it, it could it could definitely have gone either way, but she did seem to be open to the concept of feminism. Well, you know, she in the first chap later in the first chapter, she looks over at her night table and there's a copy of uh, the Feminine Mystique of Betty Friedan, <laughs> and she said her, her daughter gave her the that as a gift, and she says, "My daughter, the feminist." I don't think she identifies herself that way. Um, and you know, she was very, she was very involved with the family business. You know, when she was, um, when she was married to her her third husband, and very, you know, she. In, I mean, I mean, in the book, in my my right, character was, right. and you know, I think a lot of women, in in all points in history, you know, their husbands may have been the ones running a 
business or running a kingdom or whatever, but the, the wives were there whispering in the, in the ear and maybe driving them a bit. And yeah, I don't think she would have identified herself as a feminist, but yeah, she was, she was trying to break through and be her own person, you know, separate from her identity as a wife and mother. Now, another character that's very important in the book in a way, and I'm wondering if she came from the historical record or was one that you added. I'm guessing it's the latter, and that's Ellen. Tell, tell us about how Ellen came to be. So I, yeah, she was, an, I added, I created Ellen, um, but there was an inspiration for Ellen. And that was um, when I was looking over, I was trying to figure out at what point um, Joan moved out of this house and that her whole family moved out, you know, when, when it was sold and who was living here at various points. Um, and in the uh, 19, I think it was the 1940 census, uh, there was someone that her family was still living here. She was no longer living here, but there was someone named na living here that was a servant. It said a servant from Ireland, and that's all it said. And I don't know why she, maybe she was a house cleaner. It just said servant. That's how they identified her. And at first I, you know, I didn't think anything of it. Um, and then I was wondering, well, her father still, in 1940, her father still lived here. Her aunt and uncle lived here. Her cousins were grown. She was grown. Why was there a servant there? I mean, maybe because her aunt and uncle and father were getting older and they needed someone to clean or they had the money. And I didn't give it much thought. But then I needed a character to juxtapose against Joan, as Joan is a young mother. And I needed almost someone who had it was was a sympathetic, sympathetic to Joan's, you know, had what she had been through losing her mother and and but someone who was um, the same age as Joan and could kind of be used to, to compare and contrast. You know, you can have these two women both lost their mothers at a young age. One is an immigrant and she's, she's here with absolutely no one, absolutely nothing. And somehow she's a strong person and she knows herself and she, she, you know, um, by, she, because she has to, she does. She's not married. She has to make a life for herself and be independent. And then there's Joan, who very much wants that, and can't. And she's also not. Um, she's not always making decisions that are in her best interest. So I, I wanted another character that was just going to sort of highlight all the things that that Joan was not, and what possibly she wanted. Mm. Yeah, and I like the way you kind of tied their stories together. That was that was a nice <laughs> nice you. wrap up. Um, what was your writing process like once you decided this was going to be a novel? Um, did you already have parts written of the biography that you incorporated in, or were you starting completely from scratch at that point? Um, well. I knew, I knew there were there were elements of reality that I wanted to keep in the story. I, I just had to kind of look at at what I knew to be true, um, and how much of that I thought needed to be in the story, and how much of it was just sort of extraneous stuff that didn't matter. So the first thing I did was kind of pick and choose and decide what to keep in. And my original story was different. It was. Um, you know, a lot like the the current version starts sort of at the end of her life and and then goes works backwards. The the initial format was it was you know from birth on, and um, you know the the character uh, that she writes the that the letter that that was found in the wall that she she writes this to the the Norman character. Originally, that played or Norman played a much bigger role in the story. Um, and so I just kind of re, re, you know, refigured, reconfigured the whole structure of the story, and then decided which elements were the most important and which just were just. I mean, there's so many things <laughs> I did not include in the story that were really cool and interesting, but 
it just took that took it into a whole. I mean, crazy things in like her what? life. Like what? Like what? Um, so in the story, this part is true. She, uh, one of her daughters uh, did live outside of Little Rock on a small farm. I found a restraining order that Joan got, that real Joan got against her daughter. So she she really did build a house on on the property, um, on her daughter's property, and she had to get it. She got a restraining order against her daughter because she claimed that her daughter um, did things like put um, these metal spokes in the driveway so Joan couldn't drive up the driveway without popping her tires. She uh, changed the lock on the door. She disconnected the septic system. She you know did all these things that Joan was saying, you know, accusing her, her own daughter of, like, doing things to make the house and property uh, inhabitable. And um, and then I found, and that, she got, she hired a lawyer, and um, she got the restraining order, and then maybe, like, six months later, she dropped the restraining order, and it said that she, <laughs> she paid her lawyer um, by, by giving him a, um, a pony. That was the payment. <laughs> um, so I thought that was, and I'm like, what could have let, like, what was the nature of their relationship such that she got a restraining order? And was this the real Joan kind of being a little kooky and, and feeling threatened by everyone? Or was her daughter really kind of like making things difficult for her? But if that was the case, why would she allow her to build a house on her property? The whole thing was weird. And I thought, this is just getting, this is getting too muddled and I don't need to include this. And I wanted that daughter to be sort of a good, a good person, a caring influence in, in her life. So I, <laughs> I, omit, I left that out. Yeah, that would be a little hard to explain. Wow. <laughs> But does it does make you curious though, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's like there were there was all kinds of uh, interesting things about this family and about her life, and um, um, you know, which is why I initially I wanted to write this biography. But you know, some of the things I read that's another reason that I kind of wanted to avoid contacting her side of the family because I just didn't know. I don't know who didn't know who these people were. I didn't know if there was like a you know sort of some things you just kind of want to stay out of as an yeah, outsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have been stirring up a lot of, and you didn't need it. You didn't right. need to talk to them. You didn't need to know really the truth because you were fictionalizing it. Right. And um, so, so you you're deciding you're writing a novel you go through and you decide which bits of rea of her real life you're going to keep it in and then did you outline it before you started writing so um you know maybe you're getting at am i a pantser or a planner <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I, I am kind of both i would say i'm a planner in that yeah i actually drew um a timeline of her life putting in the, the details, some of the facts and some of the imagined details so that I could kind of understand, okay, what, what's important, you know, it, it would be, it's, it's hard to decide which parts of her life, which um, decades of her life to include, what, what, you know, I had to look at, you know, what, what were the, um, some of the most important times in her life. So certainly when she when she lost her mother at age three and then when she's an adolescent and she's sort of leaving her house for the summer and meeting a boy and kind of getting a sense of herself as a young woman, that was important. And then certainly, you know, meeting her first husband. So I had to decide what, what are the parts of her life that need to be in here in order to understand her and, and make her character believable. Um, so once I got that down, like which parts, what, what, ages and stages of her life need to be in there. Then I was more of a pantser and I would just sit down every day and just write until I couldn't write anymore. And just, um, you know, I kind of started writing, understanding that the important thing is just to write and get it out. You go back later and edit, but don't self edit. So I just, I just put everything that came into my head. I put it you know, onto my fingers and onto the computer and it was there and then I would go back and tweak it. But um, it, once I understood, you know, um, what parts of her life to keep in there and, and what was 
where, what I wanted to say with each chapter, then I could, I would just sit down every day and just write. And um, did you write chronologically then? Um, initially I did, although actually I think, I know in the beginning I was really focused on her relationship with Norman and he was a much different character in the beginning and he, he played a bigger part and he was in, in my book, he's kind of this nice guy, all shucks, kind of like gentleman, nice boy from a nice family. And initially, he was sort of a little bit of a smart aleck, and, but he pushed her a little and he made her and she sort of kind of um, was very intrigued with him. But, but he wasn't like the nicest boy. He was kind of a teaser and everything. And, and then I, I didn't like that. I needed someone that was really a good guy because it kind of made her insecurities come out because she kind of vilified him in a lot of ways, which was the kind of the beginning of when she's not being nice to people who are being nice to her. Um, interestingly, though, when I was initially writing a screenplay, um, I had the, uh, in the, it was kind of the present day, and I had the person that found the letter in the wall look up the Norman character, and he was now, you know, um, you know, well in, you know, into his 90s, living in a, an assisted living place. And she went and took the letter and met him and talked to him and he remembered her. And he, so he was really much more in the first version. And then I just, I didn't want him to be as big of a character. And, and when you, and then it makes it harder to bring in all the other characters if you're like too heavily weighed on. on yeah, especially since he wasn't part of her life. Exactly. Although you could have changed that. You could have made him yeah. part of her life, I guess. But yeah. throughout, you know, he could have been a recurring character in different stages of her life. But that would have been a different book. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So at some point you decided to, to you know, by starting with her writing this letter at the end, you're also kind of tying in the whole letter theme. And there's also it, it puts more kind of a, a suspense aspect aspect to it because it's like we don't know if she is murdered or not. Um, we know that she's afraid, but is she paranoid or is she not? And it's a it's quite a while before we find out what actually happened to her. Mm -hmm. And so was that all intentional? That was what you were what you were going for, kind of the Definitely. suspense, yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I also wanted to highlight just her. Um, yeah, I wanted to set the tension from the start and, and just her her fear um, to set that up and then to go back and see where this, you know, where where these feelings about herself kind of began. Um, and. Yeah, I mean, she, you know. The the the, ten, the tension, you know, it's it's interesting. It's not a murder mystery, but there's this element of of the thrill of not knowing. You know, with a murder mystery, I think you know from the start there's a murder, and it's the process of figuring it out and the forensics and all that, and who who did it, who done it. This wasn't exactly like that, but there were elements of that in the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about then how you published the book. So you started writing it as a novel in 2016. At what point did you say, okay, I'm, I want to go publish this? And what happened? How did that happen? Yeah, so um, around, uh, it was before the pandemic. So um, probably the beginning of 2019, I was probably three quarters of the way through the story. And I, I wasn't sure where I wanted to take it. I had a few different ideas and I, I wasn't, I wanted to bounce it off of another person. And someone referred me to um, a woman in my area who is a uh, developmental editor and she, she actually has a publishing background. And um, I, I met with her and told her about the story and right. She said, I would love to work with you. And she, you know, she was, kind of helping me um, with the flow of my story. Like I would bounce ideas off of her and she, you know, she'd say, well, this works. I don't think this works. And just helping me figure out where I wanted the story to go. And I, I worked with her um, probably, it, it was not a year, maybe, maybe um, 
eight or nine months. And then she's, I actually, she didn't see, she didn't read, you know, she wasn't doing line editing or anything. So she didn't actually see the very, when the very end of the finished manuscript, but I went back to her when I was ready to um, send, you know, to query uh, agents and uh, publishers. And she said, look, whoever you send it out to just, if you get an offer, just check with me first, since I, I have a publishing background, there's a lot of, you know, scammers out there and vanity publishers and just, you want to be careful. So um, I queried for about 10 months, 11 months, and I was getting like, you know, publishers would, you know, every publisher asks for different, um, different pieces. Some, some of them want chapter one, some of them want the first 10 pages, some of them want the whole manuscript. So, you know, it's, and you have to like, tailor it to whatever they want. And in so many cases, especially when I would send them the first chapter or the first three chapters, they'd say, oh yeah, this is great, send the whole manuscript. So I'd send it and then I, <laughs> they'd get a rejection. Yeah, well, it's not what we're looking for. And I'm thinking, wow, maybe the best part of the story is the beginning, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> and um, then probably, yeah, I had been querying for about 11 months and um, Spark Press, uh, which is under the umbrella of She Writes Press, contacted me and, and 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 made me an offer, and I didn't really know them. And I went back to my to this developmental editor, and I said, "Do you know anything about them? They're not a vanity press, are they?" And she said, "They're actually a hybrid publisher, and they're they have a very good reputation." And um, you know, Brooke Warner, the president, is she has a great background, very smart person, and I would feel very comfortable having you if you're interested accept their offer, and. I thought to myself, you know, I had I had spoken with so many authors that over that year who would tell me they spent years sending out queries and it's a it's a frustrating process. And I thought, you know, I don't I don't want to to go years with this. I just want to get this out here with a publisher I feel good about. And so I called about ten authors that had published with Spark Press. And just to get their experience and make sure that I was making the right decision, and they all were very um, pleased with the decision. And it, it, you know, it's it's a hybrid publisher, so you're you're sort of a you're you're making a financial investment, but uh, you get all the resources you need. You get a lot of guidance, um, and they have traditional distribution, so they're using Ingram Publishing Services to get the books out to brick and mortar. Built, you know, buildings and bookstores, and I really felt like um, that they 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 advocate for their authors. So I don't regret that. It was a good decision, and I looked at it as um, I'm sort of starting a small business and and I'm making a financial investment. And um, I feel like I they definitely are very very um, supportive of their of yeah. Their I've had. I've interviewed quite a few authors from She Writes Press and, and Spark Press, and I think they do a good job. And everybody's been happy with them for the for the most part. I think yeah. I had maybe one who wasn't thrilled, but but mm -hmm. most of them have been very happy with them. So the book came out in May, mm -hmm. and um, have you gotten a good response? Yes, I've gotten great response. I'm really pleased. Um, I think. Uh, Something a lot of people say about it, which makes me very happy, is that it's a page turner, and that every every chapter you're just like, yeah. <laughs> what's going on? I got some wonderful reviews. Um, I got a great review from Book Life, and you know, you, the reviews are very validating. I mean, not, not everyone likes it. Uh, you know, some people didn't like it, and we're pretty honest about it. But I I was told don't read reviews on, don't go on Amazon, don't go on Goodreads, <laughs> so I don't. And yeah, I just I just think that. Um, you know, for the most part, it's been really well received. And um, the hardest part, though, which I, I it was very eye opening, is just you know marketing a book and getting yeah. it out there. Yeah, that's hard. That is you know? hard. That is hard. And Eileen, we are out of time, unfortunately. Okay. But we always close with the quote, and I think this quote's very appropriate. It's from Lois Wise: "A letter is never ill-timed." It never interrupts. Instead, it waits for us to find the opportune minute, the quiet moment to savor the message. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today, Eileen.
and see you all next week on Radio